Hi, I'm Derek Pitts, and this is The Curious Cosmos. Today, I'm really excited because my guest is a real-life rocket scientist. That's right, the classic smart person job we all like to use in conversation, but what does that job actually entail? He'll give us a view into the secret life of a rocket engineer, the inside baseball look, so to speak, at what the experience of building a rocket is actually like. Brandon Burroughs is originally from Birmingham, Alabama. He studied engineering at Tuskegee University and was an engineering co-op for GE Aviation. From there, he went to work for Boeing as a Space Launch Systems Loads and Dynamics Analyst. He's the recipient of NASA's Space Flight Awareness Trailblazer Award in 2020, and his master's degree is from Florida Institute of Technology. Brandon, thanks for joining us today. Glad to have you with us. Uh, thanks for having me. If you'll be kind enough to tell us, what is it you're doing these days for Boeing? Yeah, okay, cool. No problem. So Boeing, been for, for about five years, I was a systems engineer on the Space Launch System program that recently launched here, which is huge, huge deal. Space Launch System, or SLS, read, newest, biggest, most powerful rocket NASA's ever built. Why is it such a huge deal? Well, its purpose is to carry us back to the moon our first step to venture further out into the solar system. We sent a vehicle to orbit around the moon and a human-rated vehicle at that to go further out into space than we've ever gone before. So that was a pretty big accomplishment for me to be a part of that program for five years. And on that program, I worked from sketch pad to launch pad. I did stress analyst work uh, as an intern. I did manufacturing engineering work on the vehicle. I helped with testing the vehicle. My last engineering role was working night shift as the uh, final integration, Boeing support for the vehicle. So working in the VAB, 9 p.m. to like 6 a.m. almost every day as the only Boeing engineering support. So that was pretty fun. But yeah, we got the thing stacked and ready to go and integrated. And a little while after that, I was actually asked to move over to business development. They thought that since I'm an engineer that they feel is pretty personable and relatable and has a lot of big dreams, very big picture. They recognized that and they said, hey, let's give you a go at working on the business side of things. So let's go from you building rockets to selling rockets. <laughs> yeah, so I've been in business development for about a year and a half now. And on that team, we work on a lot of advanced concepts for our space systems. A lot of things I primarily look at are a lot of our in-space propulsion systems. In-space propulsion systems, meaning like, how do we get around between planets? How can Boeing align itself or set itself up for success when it comes to these different deep space missions that are coming up, you know, what kind of technologies do we need to invest in? What kind of partnerships do we need to make that possible? So I'm really on the front line and that's what I do now. It's a little bit different from engineering, a lot more big picture, but I'm enjoying it. I think without that engineering foundation, I don't think I'd be effective in this role. It's still a book that's being written, but I'm, I'm enjoying every chapter of it. That sounds very exciting, going from building to selling. But let's go back so our audience can have a little bit of a better understanding. So what does vehicle integration mean? And you mentioned something called the VAB. What's the VAB? So the VAB is a very large building where we basically it was constructed back in the early 60s. America constructed it for the Apollo program to do its integration of the uh, rocket that took us to the moon the first time. Well, that building still exists, and we still use it for the integration of very large vehicles. An integration just basically means you have all these components that make up a rocket and they come from all over the country. You transport them down here to Florida at the uh, vehicle assembly building. 
and you integrate them. You put them together. You make sure that each component is talking to each other in a way that will lead to a successful mission. So you're doing some testing there. You're making sure that each bolt fits. Wire harness is wired. And again, it's all about mission success, right? So you do all that in a closed environment because you can integrate outside. It's, I guess it's possible, but it's not ideal. And it makes for more opportunity to that things like foreign object debris to oh, yeah. enter into the vehicle. And that is a no-go. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want any, no contamination. So yeah, the vehicle assembly building allows for you to do that integration in a closed environment. A great example actually is the space launch system had some issues where a hurricane threatened the vehicle. And it's one of the things where you can either stay out there or you can go to shelter in the VAB and the VAB can provide that shelter from something like a hurricane if you're waiting on the launch pad for a launch. So again, it just gives you that shelter that you need to integrate and build that vehicle before you take it to the launch pad and and then light it up and send it to space. Wait, is this the super tall building that people often see in some of the videos of uh, rocket launches from Kennedy or from Cape Canaveral? It's super tall building and they you actually build the rockets vertically right in the building. Yeah, just like that. It's huge. Actually, you know, uh, one of the more iconic things on it is the American flag. And that American flag is absolutely huge. If you look at it, it takes up like a decent amount of the building, but it's one metric that you can use to kind of get an idea of how big just the flag is on the side of the building. The blue portion where the stars are, that is the size of like a regulation NBA court. And the stripes themselves are wide enough to drive a charter bus down. Wow. So if it was on the ground, you could drive a bus <laughs> like the size of a lane that is so, huge. yeah so pretty big and that's just the flag that's not even talking about the building itself and the, the sls itself is like 322 feet and for reference 322 feet is slightly larger than the statue of liberty and that sits on top of a mobile launcher so it's again you're making really big big things inside of this even bigger building amazing absolutely amazing so when you're integrating or you know putting the rocket together doing all this assembly does it come with a set of directions? I mean, you know, just jokingly, I was just saying to the producer here, I wonder if it comes with a set of directions that looks like the IKEA stuff, you know, when you're trying to assemble things. I'm sure it's incredibly detailed, but how do you work that out? Do you have people that you work with from the manufacturer of these things that help you to assemble this stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. Like a really good question, because I don't think I've ever had anybody ask me that, but it comes with a set of instructions. But uh, I want to keep one thing in mind. So for SLS, it was the first SLS that was ever built. Therefore, yes, instructions existed, but it was our first time using those instructions. We have a baseline set of installation drawings that allow you to say, hey, this bolt needs to go here, this washer needs to go here, right? But you also have a group of engineers that sit down and write out the installation plan for the technicians that actually do that work. So you have the installation drawing, that's just a bunch of dimensions and just saying this needs to go there. Well, what happens in between there? Someone has to do that. What kind of tools are needed? Yeah. All those things have to be called out right. by an engineer who sits down, looks at those drawings and translates them into instructions. And when we get done installing it, we come back and get feedback from the technician, from the engineers. How did that go? And we make red lines to those instructions. So the next time that we build SLS, we can say, hey, make sure you do X, Y, and Z because it's a little bit better than ABC, you know? So yeah, there, there are set of instructions this first time we had to build them, but uh, they get better and better each iteration of the vehicle for sure. And do you just use like regular tools or you have specialized tools to do this work? Great question. So to be honest, most of the tools are kind of normal. Only thing is a lot of them are big. So you may have a socket wrench, right? But you're not used to seeing socket wrenches this big. You know, like a lot of the things are just bigger because what you're working on is bigger. So 
actually Boeing, we have a friction stir welder and it's like one of the largest in the world. Friction stir welding is a way to join metals. It's actually quite a simple process. Imagine spinning a metal rod so fast that its tip glows when it's pressed against a joint between two metal plates. The heat of the spin caused by friction causes the edges of the plates to melt together. Once it's done, the metal pieces are joined and the joint itself is smooth. Part of the reason why this method might be used is because you may not want to completely melt the metals all the way through, or you might want to make one long continuous joint without sparks or flame. Yeah, you can find friction stir welding, but to build something that's big, you don't really have them. So again, you have to build even bigger tools to work on these vehicles. Yeah, okay. And the other thing I think I grasp in this is that since it's such a big machine that we're talking about, there are hundreds of thousands of components that have to be assembled to very, very high specifications to make sure that everything is going to work exactly right. And uh, was the analysis of that or was that part of your job when you were doing this kind of work? Yeah, so tolerance is huge. When you're installing whatever, how big, small it is, in the engineering drawing, you'll say you have a tolerance to move maybe, you know, 15 thousandths of an inch to the right or to the left. If you're outside of that, then we have to spiral over. Wow. So how did you get into this job? I mean, when you were a kid, were you thinking that this is the direction you wanted to go engineering? And for you, is this about the engineering or is it about space travel? And the work that you're doing is facilitating the space travel. Which one is it for you? I tell people this all the time. I am an engineer by trade, but number one, I'm a space advocate. That's what I've been since you know, I was a kid. Before I even knew if I really wanted to be an engineer, I was an advocate for space and wanted to advocate for us going deeper and deeper into space. So as a kid, I wanted to save the world like a lot of people. And the best solution I could come up with was to take everyone that is on the planet and give them an opportunity to look at the planet in its most natural state without all the borders and the things that we see on maps. We're all from the same place, and it gives you that perspective to, at the end of the day, we just need to work together. So I figured going to space is what's going to give us that kind of top-down look at, hey, we're all the same. That was kind of what got me in. All the best to you in your attempt to try to unify the world this way. I'm all for that. That's great. So now, when you and your colleagues are actually working on doing this kind of integration, what is it that you think about? I mean, are you talking about the work that's right there? Or are you talking about the, the basketball game from last night? Or it's not a question about, are you focused on what you're doing? But it's just like, what's a day like for people who work on big things like this? Yeah, I think, you know, it's very similar to what I imagine most people's day is like when it comes to your interaction with coworkers. We uh, talk about whatever show is nice that uh, we enjoy. Now, I will say we are pretty space-centric when it comes to a lot of the things we watch. Mm. So that kind of there's a connection there. So like, okay. like my favorite show is The Expanse. And you can't take two steps in the office without finding someone who also loves The Expanse and we can sit down and have a conversation. So I think a lot of our stuff is space-centric, but at the end of the day, we do have things that drive us. Like for me, outside of work, I'm big into music. Like music is everything for me. Uh, I play drum set and I like to produce hip hop beats and stuff like that, you know, just play around those things. And not for money or anything, but just for the enjoyment of making music. So I definitely have colleagues that are also the same way when it comes to music and things like that. I think most of us, even though 
space is a part of our day-to-day life with our profession. We have these other hobbies that we take just as serious because it means just as much to us. So because there are so many people around you, Brandon, that you work with that are into space, does it feel pretty normal to you that this is just a job we all have? We're just doing this thing and, and this is what we do, as opposed to thinking about it as something that is really incredibly special that you do. I definitely do think that we become desensitized because, again, you see it every day. You see these awesome vehicles being integrated and you talk about these concepts that are super far out. Some of these things may not happen for 20, 30 years, but they're just very cool, awesome concepts. And I think that's why I do some of the things I do when it comes to, like, giving tours around the Space Center and uh, going to elementary schools, middle schools, high schools and talking about what I do because it does bring you back kind of in a sobering way. Like, hey, what I do is pretty important. There's also a lot of people think it's really cool. And I should definitely take pride in what I do and make sure I can do it the best that I can do it. Because again, sometimes when you're just in your echo chamber of being at work with everybody else who's doing it, you forget about the significance that comes with it. So yeah, you're right. We definitely kind of do get used to a lot of the, the things we do. What's it feel like, Brandon, when they hit the big red button and the uh, and the engines fire? Oh man, it's, um, I think I can speak for most people that is one of the proudest moments in anybody's life. For me, I spent five years of my life straight out of college. I graduated from Tuskegee University, and two weeks later, I was on the program. Wow. Yeah, so I didn't take any break or anything. I wanted to get straight to it. And it's one of those things where I kind of kept that same energy for those five years. So when I saw the launch, it was, I really can't describe how it feels, but I think the people is what I thought about a lot more than the actual hardware itself, because I think, for me at least, the uh, more lasting feeling I have from being on the program is, man, I got to work with super smart, super cool people. So there's a lot of camaraderie there. And I got to watch it with a lot of people that I did work with. So it was it was great to be in the presence of everybody else who I assume or hope felt the same way about me. Uh, they enjoyed working with me and that, that this was an awesome experience. Yeah, I'm sure they did have that feeling. So you watch the rocket going. Are you interested in going? To be honest, yeah. I do plan on applying fashion. I can see the next opportunity I get. I couldn't do it the first time I didn't have my master's. But yeah, it's definitely something that's always interested me. I'm not mission-centric. I just want to go to space, you know? So it's not like one of those things where, <laughs> oh, if I'm not on the first Mars mission, I don't want to go. Like, yeah. no, man, all of space is super cool to me. If I had an opportunity, I would love to play whatever role to help, again, get us further into space, whatever that would look like. Even if it didn't involve me going into space and not just supporting the programs, I just want to be attached to us becoming a space-faring civilization. Is there anything else about being out in space? I mean, do you are you thinking about what it would feel like to be in space? Are you thinking about the exploration part of it or just uh, pressing the envelope to get humans further out there? I think it's important to challenge yourself as a species to further evolve and to find out more things about yourself and maybe better ways of doing things. Just because we're here on this earth and we deal with the type of gravity we deal with and all those things, that doesn't mean that that's the best way to do certain things, right? So like, for instance, we're pretty aware that building fiber optics is a much better process in space than it is on Earth because the lack of gravity or 3D printing organs and stuff is something that we believe is much easier in space because you don't have gravity to like make all the cells mush together. You can now print layers and be more intentional about how you make these things. And these are things that will directly impact us here on the ground. So I just think we'll be 
hindering ourselves with options if we do not look at the advantages that the space environment does give us. Sure. And when you say organs, you're talking like uh, kidneys and livers and things like that, human organs. Mm -hmm. That's pretty yeah. advanced. So I'm going to go back to one other thing that you were talking about before, you and your colleagues working on the integration you talked about one of the weird problems that you might have to solve if you have something that's 15 thousandths of an inch out of alignment, the tolerances you have. Were there other kinds of weird problems that you would run into that might affect how you go about doing that integration? Yeah. So we have these things called non-conformances. And that just basically means we made an engineering drawing and this is how the entire vehicle should look. It should be exactly the print. The way that we made these instructions, these drawings is how you should look. Well, you start off with a drawing looking one way, but then by the end of the process for a developmental program, it's going to look pretty different from what you started with because oh. once you get to the manufacturing portion and you're now actually trying to do the installations and stuff, certain things just don't fit the way we thought. There's certain interferences. We might not be able to get to a spot unless we are levitating. So it's like, okay, we can't <laughs> install this unless we're literally levitating. We're going to have to try something else. Um, so uh, that, that's kind of a broad example of like some of the problems we have. But a lot of them would be just literally, sometimes you just can't get to certain things the way that we thought that we would. Our bodies don't contort in such a way that we can actually do some of these, <laughs> these things. So um, I think that was one of the bigger things. It's like finding out like, oh, this actually may not be possible. <laughs> and you go back to the drawing board and you come up with another idea and you change the drawing accordingly or change the tooling mm -hmm. accordingly mm -hmm. or sometimes change the person accordingly. Mm -hmm. Did these things typically happen at three o'clock in the morning when you ran into that particular problem? <laughs> Man, I can't count how many times they just happen at what seems to be the most unopportune time, right? At the end of a shift and people want to go home, but it's like, hey, we're already working this and let's go ahead and finish up and we push through it. Those are the things people don't see is those nights where you want to go home you want to go back to your family if you want to go back to doing whatever you want to do but you make those sacrifices the engineers the technicians the you know whoever to make this happen and stay on schedule so that the country can be in a better place from a space bearing situation so yeah it's always an option <laughs> so let me ask you a little bit about the time not spent in the vab you said that you play drums and you make hip-hop beats are you part of a band um, so actually not properly like a part of a group. I do have a group of friends who do music and they travel and I go to their shows and I get feedback on that. I go to the studios and hang out with them and say, hey, I, I like this. I don't like this as much and stuff like that. But I do hope to get more free time now that the rocket is launched and I'm kind of <laughs> settling into my new job where I can participate a little bit more by like, you know, providing beats and, and maybe even doing live performances with them. So. I put a lot of things on hold in my life during that time period that we were doing the integration, but I think it was worth it. And I think I wasn't the only one for sure, but music is one of the things I definitely want to bring back because I was in a band in middle school, high school, college, all those things. Mm. You know, I want to get back into it. I, I miss the way it feels. I miss performing. So it's, it's an ongoing thing. I'll let you know. And then also I was getting my master's and working at the same time. So I, I just didn't have time for music yeah. at the time, you know? Yeah. So now you're in the business of selling rockets. Mm -hmm. Do you have like a case that you walk around with that has, you know, the cut sheets and the colored slicks of, of what you're selling that you take to a, a potential buyer and lay out on the table and say, hey, you need one of these? Yeah, that's exactly what we do. We walk around with signs outside of, you know, the building and 
See if people would just want to buy a rocket. No, um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I think for me, what I love about this job is it's very open-ended because you're on the cutting edge of helping the company make decisions on where they should, you know, invest or what opportunities they should pursue and stuff. So a lot of it is very like flexible. Don't get me wrong. We're, we're in temple what we do, but it's not like an engineering where someone's just telling me to install this part and I just install it. I have to help create the message of what we're doing and why we're doing it. So one of the things I've been doing lately, and I can't talk in detail about it, but. Oh, come on. It's just us. Just me and you, Derek, right? <laughs> right. This is not like this is going out oh, the world. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. yeah, but um, for me, when I first started my job, they gave me a area that they wanted me to look at, an area of technology. And what I did was I did assessment on where we are as a company and where our competition may be with this technology and how we should move forward. That's a big part of your job is assessing not only internally where you are, but what is the competition doing? How can we better help our customers like NASA or the DOD who might want to be a customer? Most people think that NASA builds all of its own rockets, when in fact, NASA really is just a big contractor, someone that hires others to build what it needs. That includes rockets, space capsules, space suits, anything that has to do with space NASA finds someone who can build it and build it well. But let's just keep in mind that contracts are always awarded to the lowest bidder, the company that says they can build it for the least amount of money and typically in the least amount of time. Once you do those assessments, you have to sit back and say, hmm, what would maybe be the biggest discriminator for us in that technology area, right? And so what I did was I identified some gaps and I said, hey, and I think if we fill in those gaps, we're good to go. You have to say, now, what's the best way of making this technology? Is it just Boeing doing it by themselves internally and this and that and this? Or maybe are there some partners out there that we can partner with that may have an expertise in something that will complement what we have expertise in? Maybe we work with NASA and they might have funding for X, Y, and Z technology development that they want. So that's kind of where I'm at now. And once I build those partnerships, identify different resources we can use, then execute, work on that technology. This may take years. Yeah. I mean, sure. you, you know how this goes. It, you, you could identify a certain type of tech. It could take 10 years to develop. But once right. you develop it, you have a discriminator. And now you're able to then get out in front of the building and say, we have now built this. <laughs> and who, who wants to buy one? Anyone can buy one. Nah, that's not what you do. But you get what I'm saying. I, I think there's a lot of working backwards in this job as well. So it's very futuristic. I mean, it's really, like you say, it's open-ended, cutting edge. You're right out there. So if you were writing a science fiction story or creating a space science fiction story yourself now about what you think the future of space travel would be like, what do you think would be some of the main themes or concepts mm. in that that could turn out to become real in the future or that you would want to see become real in the future? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think... One of the big things I would like to talk about is the dynamic between human space exploration versus, you know, your more autonomous robotic space exploration. Autonomous robotic? Sounds like future space to me. But let's just say independent, smart rovers instead. If the rover had days worth of assignments preloaded, the rover could operate independently and continuously without having to wait for instructions to come from Earth. I think we get 
wrapped around the axle sometimes with what we want the universe to look like from a human space exploration standpoint where, you know, we're going to be like, oh, man, we're going to be amongst the stars and all these different places, and it's not going to take us that long and things like that. I think if I had a sci-fi show, it, it would just show a little bit more realistic vibe of that. Honestly, in the near future, I don't see us going too much further human-wise than the solar system. The type of propulsion we have right now to get to some of these places and stuff, it's just one of those things where it may not be ideal for humans to go that far. Now, with the right technology advancements, maybe if we could hibernate or sleep during some of these journeys, or you have the concept of generational shifts where generations are aware that, hey, we won't see the promised land wherever that is, but maybe five generations from now we'll see it. I would talk about those type of things when it comes to the vastness of space. It's just not a place you that we know of right now where you can just go from point to point and just hop around. So I think I would probably make a sci-fi that is revolved around, to me, more realistic and reasonable modes of transportation around the solar system and even the galaxy. Brandon, I got to tell you, that's that's not what I was hoping to hear. I was really depending on you and your colleagues to come up with either some kind of a tesseract shift or, you know, some kind of a warp drive or something, because I'm trying to get to the next galaxy before too long. Yeah. And to be honest, I hope we get there. But I'm just as excited about the idea of colonizing the solar system. That is super cool to me. The idea of like, you know, one day having an outpost at Pluto, sharing Pluto's moon is so close to maybe there might be like this giant mechanical like bridge to one another and stuff like that. Just these really cool concepts. I could see stuff like that happening and it sounds like a pretty cool solar system to me. But yeah, there's so many things you have to take into consideration when you start traveling that far. One of the technologies we don't talk about a lot, I think is communication technology. Comms is huge. True. The speed of light, as we know right now, is kind of the uh, speed limit. The same thing with comms. Even if you can get your comms and traveling at the speed of light from here to Pluto, it still could take for you to get just one message back and forth. I think there's a lot of things there that people don't take into consideration. Like, oh, we'll always be able to talk to each other instantly across the solar system. We don't really know a method of doing that right now. Elon Musk has this idea of colonizing Mars in the not-too-distant future using the, mm-hmm. the starship that he's building to take you know lots of payload and lots of people out there. Are you envisioning that that we're going to have domed cities on Mars at some time in the not-too-distant future? And is this the kind of future that we ought to be promoting of, you know, domed cities on the moon and domed cities on Mars? Yeah, I think what SpaceX is doing is definitely, like, you know, in a lot of ways revolutionary. They're trying things that some other places might not be willing to try. So there's a place for that. As far as the domed cities and things like that on Mars, I don't see a lot of that being what it looks like. So I think sometimes, you know, a lot of us in the space industry, we, we sell a dream that might not be totally accurate of what it would look like. For instance, like you have these big glass dome cities. How does that work with radiation and things like that? Can we really even possibly have those type of buildings? Or do we have to live subterranean, you know, live in lava tubes? Or what do we actually have to do? And I think we maybe should work on giving them a little bit more accurate depiction of that. But I think in the meantime, because no one really knows, There's a lot of work to be done, but I tend to think it won't look how a lot of people are depicting. Like, it's going to be rough. It's going to be very challenging. I mean, we got to get there first. We haven't even talked about the trip, right? You know, (laughs) Right, um, we haven't. Sure. Before we can even make the dome cities, we have to get there. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of challenges there. Um, I think me personally, I'm very pro-moon first. I think there's a lot to learn there. Because at the end of the day, like I said, with communication, 
can get it back and forth pretty quickly, relatively. If something goes wrong, you can get that turf pretty quickly. I don't see why we wouldn't start there. We kind of done the Leo thing. In this case, Leo means low Earth orbit. And that's up to an altitude of about 1,200 miles. That's where we find International Space Station at about 220 miles up. And then there's Hubble Space Telescope. That's at about 400 miles up. I think we're definitely going to keep moving forward and try to get commercialized and stuff. And I think the moon is next. I want to fact check this because I've just recently heard this last week and I haven't looked it up yet. But from my understanding, in total, we spent something like 12 days on the moon that's all so yeah. we got a lot to learn and a lot more staying to do um and that really puts in the perspective of like man we, we really have not spent very much time on the surface of the moon which makes it hard for me to just think who just skip over the moon and then spend months on mars it, it, it's very hard for me to imagine how that would be uh, a good idea I mean, you understand all the propulsion and all this sort of stuff, but what do you think of as the biggest impediment to uh, just the journey out to Mars? People. Keeping people alive. You know, you send a cargo there, I think that's more possible. Robot there, yeah. We get, but the people part is really what just makes this very complex. Yeah. From a psychological standpoint, physiological standpoint, we have some understanding of how the body reacts in space, but not as much as I think we need to go to Mars yet. We don't really know how people deal with that trip psychologically. We don't know really what would happen. A lot of us assume, oh, man, I could do that. You can stick me in a tin can for eight months and I'll be just fine. <laughs> but they've never been in a tin can for eight months, yeah. right? I heard someone speak about this recently about exploring caves and stuff like that and how that can be very hard for people psychologically because they've never been enclosed like that before and total darkness. And this could only be a few hours or so, and it just really messes with people psychologically. You might not know it, but we're so used to going out into open air and stuff like that. What happens if something breaks down and not to get too cynical, but if certain things break down, how do you make the ethical decision on, oh, we now have enough food for just three people instead of four people on this mission? What do you do? Ooh. What do you do? And people don't want to bring up those situations, but no, anything can happen out there and you can't get a lot of help once you're on that trip. So. We want to make sure that we do it right, make sure that people are safe before we do that. And I think we may not be there right now, but we will get there. But we, we got to do our due diligence. That's why the moon is such a great place to start. It's a great place to start. If you were on that trip, is there an aspect that you think would be the most challenging for you? To be honest, I think being away from the people I love. Of course, you'll build camaraderie amongst your new team and stuff. Yeah. But being away from my wife, my friends, my family... That'll be really, really tough. And not even just from a perspective of it's tough on me, knowing that it's tough on them as well yeah. would affect me. Knowing that they may be worrying and, and stuff like that, I think that would be really hard for me. And on a lighter note, being away from my drum set for that long, man, that, that'll really suck. <laughs> 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 one, one of the most calming things, like it calms me down a lot to play my drum set. So not, I, I just don't, I don't see them allowing me to bring my drum set. So yeah, I think that'd be really hard too. <laughs> and uh, the last kind of statement on just how I think I feel in general about space industry and where we're going right now. If, if I could let the public know anything, it would be that it's going to take everybody, literally everybody. It's going to take people understanding, you know, the complexities of space and advocating. It's going to take the legislators understanding those things. It's going to take every space company. 
healthy competition is a good thing or, or whatever, but I don't believe in beating down on other companies and, and demonizing other companies because I think we're all playing a very important role in this effort. But again, it's not just the engineers, not just technicians, it's the people who keep our facilities clean. It's all kinds of people that are a part of this that help us get there. So do your part in advocating where, whatever that looks like for you. So that'd be what I want everyone to understand and keep in mind. That's a great message for people to understand about that, is that there are so many opportunities for so many different people to support these missions and make them happen. And in doing that, to be able to advance humanity. Great, Brandon. Thanks a lot. Hey, no, thank you for having me. Need anything, let me know. Thank you. Thank you very much. Amazing. As I think back on my conversation with Brandon, it's really interesting to hear his thoughts on the future of space exploration. His unique perspective as someone who has actually worked on the rockets that will carry us back to the moon and possibly on to Mars. And from someone working on the development of those future technologies that will open our opportunities to explore the solar system. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and this whole season of Curious Cosmos. You know, it makes sense that we're curious about the cosmos because the universe is a part of us. The physics of astronomical observing is that your eyes collect photons from celestial objects. Those photons strike your retina, a piece of your brain, and create an electrical impulse your brain translates into an image. Once the photons strike your retina, they become yours forever. Through observing, we should never forget that the universe is ours to discover and enjoy. Make sure you look up and gather some universal photons of your own. This podcast is made in partnership with Radio Kismet, Philadelphia's premier podcast production studio. This podcast is produced by Amy Carson. The Franklin Institute's director of digital editorial is Joy Matafusco, and Aaron Armstrong runs marketing, communications, and digital media. Head of operations is Christopher Plant. Our mix engineer is Justin Berger, and I'm Derek Pitts, chief astronomer and director of the Fels Planetarium at the Franklin Institute, and your host for this podcast. Thanks so much for listening.